Here at City, we've been going through a sermon series based upon a letter to the Ephesians. A letter to the Ephesians, and it's written by a man by the name of the Apostle Paul when we are first introduced to him in the Newer Testament. He is arresting, persecuting, and killing Christians. And then while he's on the road traveling to do that some more, he meets the resurrected Christ, and his life is radically transformed. What we've been doing for the past several weeks is we've been taking a look at the book of Ephesians and discovering our identity in Christ and what that looks like. And this morning, what I want to talk about is identity, relational realness. Now, I want to make this disclaimer, and it's not an apology, but I want to say at the beginning that the sermon that I'm stepping into is PG-rated, and I mean that seriously. So if you have small children here, it's up to you what you would like to do, but we're going to talk very openly and honestly about relational honesty, the idea of relational realness, because the Apostle Paul does in the letters that he writes. And so before we jump into the book of Ephesians, I want us to recap last week one of the points that I had made because it is central to what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's this, that the Apostle Paul warns the people of Ephesus that there are groups of people that having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. The idea of that sermon, and you can go back and listen to it, but the idea was this, is that the Apostle Paul uploads to us a position of the heart that is either sensitive or sensual. It's either sensitive or sensual. Sensitivity says, I'm aware of you and your needs, not just mine. Sensuality says, you are here for me and to meet my needs. And the Apostle Paul declares, the problem with this is, is that it leads towards lust and lust can never be satisfied. There just needs to be more and more and more for there to be satisfaction, whereas with sensitivity, sensitivity actually takes a person in the areas of physical intimacy and brings them to a place of contentment. It's very different. But the ideas with sensuality is, is that the boundaries of what is morally correct gets pushed farther and farther to the fringes as lust drives forward in order to get itself satisfied. And the reason why I wanted to mention this is this morning we are going to be talking about marriage. But we're going to do it in the way of what the Apostle Paul brings to us and it's really relational realness. Now, before we take a look at Ephesians, there is something that Jesus says that I believe with all of my heart, Paul has in mind as he's looking towards marriage. The text is going to be up on the screen, and I want you to read with me, you quietly to yourself, I'll read it out loud what Jesus has to say. Jesus called them, this is Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them, meaning his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And if there's any confusion at all in the Gospel of Matthew about what Jesus meant, here's a verse that comes a little bit later in the Gospel. Here's what Jesus says. The greatest among you will be your servant. Your servant. What Jesus begins to teach in leadership literature today, leadership literature today is called servant leadership. Totally unheard of in Jesus' day. Totally unheard of. But Jesus shows up on the scene and says, look, Climbing the ladder is not what's going to make you great. Becoming a servant is what will make you great. And then as we look at the Gospels and we look at the Newer Testament, we begin to understand something. That is this. When God puts me in a place of positional authority, the reason why he put me there is to serve others. That's why he's placed me there. He has not placed me there for my own aggrandizement. He has not placed me there so that I can be something. And as a follower of Jesus, and if you're not, this does not apply to you. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the day you are given positional authority, your purpose is to serve. Have you ever seen someone that gets promoted? And right after that promotion, when they get positional authority, their whole attitude changes. And it's not one of serving. It's one of entitlement. Jesus says to his disciples, you leave that for other people. That's what Gentiles do. People who are disconnected from God. Not so with you, Jesus says. When you get positional authority, you step into that and you allow the heart of a servant through Christ to grow. It is so countercultural to everything in Jesus' day, it was completely shocking. Now let's talk about marriage. I would like for you to read with me on the big screen Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. Here's what Scripture says Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit to your, hus- to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, listen up. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does the church. For we... For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his, what's the next word? Wife. 
and the two will become one flesh, physical intimacy. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I do not have this in my notes, but I think it's important to say this. Gentlemen, we did not marry our mother. Did you notice that? We are called to leave and to cleave. Your wife is not your mother. And half the men here are going, hallelujah, that's why I married her. You know what Paul's really saying? He's saying that the woman that you marry is going to be fundamentally in many ways different than your mother. And ladies, if you're married or women, if you ever do get married, your husband will not be the same as your father. You are called to leave and to cleave. It's something new. It's something new. Now, I know, because I've been around the academy now for 30 years, that as soon as some people see wives submit to husbands, they're out. They want no part of it. And yet what I want us to do as a church family is to process biblically. And as we process biblically together, you're going to discover that what Paul sets forth is the most radical view of marriage that promotes women beyond anything in his culture anywhere. Anywhere. And here's where you have to start. Did you notice that when Paul begins to talk about marriage, he says this as the beginning verse. Submit to what? Out of reverence for Christ. Then he begins to talk about wives submit to husbands. But here's where it starts. It begins with mutual submission. Mutual submission. Submit to one another. That's where the whole section begins. And so oftentimes this is missed when people begin to process through what Paul writes. Now here's what Paul does write. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to who? Lord. In other words, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is going to give you an insight into what it looks like to follow Jesus. But for those of us who do, you and I know that my life is not my own. The moment I say yes to Jesus, I submit to him. He is my Lord. He is my King. And what he asks of me, I submit to. Now here's the question. Is it only the wife who knows what it means to submit to the Lord? Of course not. The husband also knows what it's like to submit to the Lord because he does it every day too. So if you're walking in Jesus in a marriage, both of you submit yourself to the Lord, but Paul says to the wife, listen, wives, you submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Then to the husbands. Husbands, She doesn't have to love you. She just has to submit to you. Isn't that fascinating? The Apostle Paul shows up and he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. 
powerful. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things about this. Please understand, and it's this. Yes, wives are called to submit, but husbands are called to love. And we are called not to love by some earthly framework. We are called to love the way Christ loved the Isn't it strange that Christian marriage is based on a relationship with a guy who was never married? It's fascinating. The relationship of Jesus to the church is what Paul lifts up. Look, Paul could have used any number of Older Testament relationships. He could have used Abraham and Sarah. He could have used Jacob and Rachel. This incredible love relationship found in the Older Testament, he doesn't. He does not say... Men, love your wives the way Jacob loved Rachel. He does not say that. He says that the model for love and marriage comes from Christ loving the church. It's amazing. I'm called to love the way someone loved that was never married. I don't know how that strikes you, but it's a little bit odd. But I found out it's true. Because the way Christ has loved the church is profound. He gave up his life. Now, I'm going to dig even a greater hole for myself than I've already dug. The reason why is we are a biblically-centered, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. What that means is we read the Bible, we take it for what it says, And then we apply it in our relationships, and then we are spirit-led, meaning the Holy Spirit is there to help us to move forward in these relationships. And I will tell you, if anyone had any brains and they read what Paul writes, they would never get married. They wouldn't. But listen, I want to be honest about something. The Apostle Paul, when he writes his letters, he's doing one of three things. He is either correcting a problem in the church or he's showing a Christ-centered pathway forward and the people don't know what that is. This is the first century church. All of the uh, scriptures we're going to read are from the first century or what he's doing is answering questions. It's pretty cool. Correction, providing a way forward or answering questions. And what what we're getting ready to read now is when Paul answers a question from the church of Corinth, and Corinth is like Las Vegas. Sexual promiscuity is everywhere in Corinth. And yet there's this church that is now growing in Christ, and people are getting kind of burned out, sexed out, drugged out, and they're turning to Jesus, and they're coming into the church of Corinth, and Paul is letting them know what does a Christian marriage look like. We pick up our reading now in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. We'll come back to the book of Ephesus in a few moments. But here's where Paul really gets into the nitty-gritty of marriage. Here's what he says. Now, for the matters you wrote about, now I want you to notice Paul has received a letter from the church of Corinth, and they're asking him the following question. 
It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. I want you to get this. The question is, or there's been a statement made, that the more godly you are, the more you no longer have sexual relations. So the most godly among you will live celibate lives even if they're married. And Paul responds to this, and one of the reasons why he has to respond is there's a false narrative that has entered the church. In many of the letters, you'll see this, that he writes, there's a false narrative where somehow anything with the physical body is sinful. And so some people are looking at sexual interaction, even in marriage, and going, look, that's sinful because it involves the body. And here's Paul's response. He writes, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the statement or the question. Here's what he writes. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it or gives it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it or he gives it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except for perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, this couple fasts sexual relations for a period of time, and then Paul says they devote themselves to prayer, and then he says, but then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. Verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has the gift, and another has that. Now, I'm so glad it's quiet in here. Here's why. Whoever read what Paul just wrote in the Newer Testament during Newer Testament times would have been stunned. Stunned. Here's why. Here's what he wrote. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields or gives it as a gift to her husband. The next phrase is mind-blowing. It's not found anywhere else in any literature during Paul's day, and it's this. In the same way, the husband does not have what? Authority over his own body, but he yields it, he gives it as a gift to who? His wife. The wife has authority over the man's body. Totally unheard of. Radically unheard of. As a matter of fact, when you read this and you look at it, what you discover is there is now mutual submission in the most intimate realm in marriage. And here's what else is happening. The authority of the woman just skyrocketed. She is no longer the property of a husband. Her body is no longer at his beck and call. As a matter of fact, she now has authority over his body as well. It is mutual gifting and mutual 
submission. It is stunning. It's radical. It's new. And if anyone tries to tell you that the Apostle Paul's view of marriage is oppressive for women, you have to understand the trajectory of what he is teaching. He is teaching that women and men mutually submit in the midst of the most intimate reality of marriage. But thank God Paul does not stop there. It gets even deeper. So let's go. 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 28. Here's what Paul writes. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you. (laughs) Wow. And funny enough, most Bible scholars believe that Paul was most likely married, but his wife is deceased. He's a widower. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says. But those who marry will face what? Wow. Relational realness, isn't it? I grew up in a church where every pastor got up front and painted a picture of marriage like it was heaven on earth. You know what they did? Every church where I was a part of, they lied. (laughs) Marriage is one of the most difficult things you will ever commit to in your life. Is it a blessing? Yes, absolutely. But marriage, obviously, if Christ is loving the church as the example for marriage, then marriage is something that's going to make me more like Jesus. That's the purpose of marriage spiritually, is I'm in a covenant relationship with one person for the rest of my life. I cannot cut bait and run, and I am faced to sit there and deal with my stuff, and God's going to use it to make me like Jesus. I'm going to learn what it feels like to forgive, to be forgiven. I'm going to learn what it looks like and feels like to be called to a higher level. But here's what Paul says. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. You know, the raw truth is, I have never once in all my years in a church heard anyone preach on this. Here's why. The narrative in every church was this. By the age of 16, be in a youth group and meet Christian women. Date them. Don't touch them. (laughs) Stay 50 feet away, but date them. Right? Look, I remember in premarital counseling, which I went to with my wife, my wife's pastor, I called him Rev. I had, he's home with the Lord, but had huge respect for Rev. And I remember sitting down with him, we were going through premarital, and he looks at me and he said, Pete, He said, I never kissed my wife until I married her. And I went, oof, (laughs) oof. And then he said, but Pete, she wasn't my wife until I married her. You get the joke? 
But here's what I will tell you. The Apostle Paul is honest. It's incredible to me how honest he is. He's truthful. But you see, the pattern was be 16 or 17, get in a youth group, begin to date, and then by about the age between 20 and 25, you better locate a Christian woman. You better court her, suit her, date her, and marry her. And then within a couple of years, have kids, and that's God's best. If you're truly walking with Jesus, this is where you're going to end up. Do you realize that is almost completely against what Paul teaches? It's shocking. But that was a narrative I heard everywhere. And if someone was single in the church and was not married, it was always like this, eh, something wrong with them. That's got to be for sure. Yet Paul says this, for those who marry will face many troubles in life, and I want to spare you from it. But not only does he say this, but Paul also says some other things. And it's this. We just read it. Paul said, I wish that all of you were as I am. He's single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. In other words, Paul actually viewed singleness as a calling from God. He did. I know of people who have the same calling because of Jesus. They're called to that. And in the midst of that calling, it's not that they don't struggle, but it's that Jesus Christ is enough and the local church family needs to be enough that if people are single, they have a place where they're loved and they have a family. So important. Now, Paul does say, I wish that people were single as I am. But he also goes on to say this. Going on, he says, now to be unmarried, and here's why he says he wishes people were single, now to be unmarried, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now I heard that verse preached on a ton. <laughs> I never once heard someone preach on, if you get married, it's going to be a struggle. No one ever preached on that, but they sure preached on this. But here's what's amazing to me. Even though Paul admits that sexual passion is something that every person must deal with, he does say that Jesus Christ and a relationship with Christ can be greater than that drive and that passion. Now, as we look on, what becomes obvious is this. It is that singleness is a Christ-centered way to live life. It is. Singleness is a way in which the Apostle Paul would say so clearly is that if you're single, you can completely devote yourself to the Lord. Here's what he writes when he's talking about marriage. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. What's amazing is, is if you were to read on, Paul says the same thing to women, exact same thing. 
It's mutual. It's a mutual calling. It's a mutual submission. So Paul goes right on and says, and to the woman that isn't married, she can focus solely on the Lord. Solely on the Lord. But I want us to be careful to understand this. And that is, Paul does say, if we're called to singleness, we will have a grace and the gift to do it. It's a gift. We're not pressured into it. Also notice that that choice towards singleness isn't made out of maybe some dysfunction or some fear or some brokenness. No, it is something that someone steps into wholeheartedly and recognizes the call of God on their life. And in their singleness, they find that they can move close to Christ. Now, here's what I do want to say. The Apostle Paul is well aware of married couples who are serving the Lord with huge fruit. Priscilla and Aquila is an example. Right there in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is ministering with a married couple. So he's very clear that it is real, that it can work, and God uses it tremendously. He knows this. But Paul also recognizes that because of his singleness, he has freedom to serve Christ at a level that he did not have while he was married, if he was married, or he would not have if he were to step forward. I want to say this. I don't want anyone here single to be freaked out about marriage. But I want you to go into it with honesty and integrity. I do. I want you to understand what it looks like if you're going to follow Christ into marriage. This is important. Because ultimately what we're called to is, women, when you step into marriage, you know what it looks like to submit to Jesus. That submission will be expressed also towards your husband. And husbands know what it's like to submit to Jesus too. It's not foreign to them at all. At all. And so the idea then is, is that you step into marriage with Jesus at the center. He's the example. And as you look at how he loved others and he loved the church and he gives himself up for the church and he submits himself to the call of God, that's what marriage is based on. It's a powerful thing. Now, when we look at this, how do we put feet to our faith? What does it look like because my identity in Christ and as I'm walking in Christ, if I'm in, in a marriage now, maybe I need to shift some things. If I'm moving towards marriage, listen carefully to what the Newer Testament tells us marriage is. But here's what I wanted to say. First of all, if you are married or you're working towards marriage, be the type of person where you're going to deal with the realities of your life. If you know that you have struggles, believe me, marriage was sold to me in every church I was at, that if I got married between 21 and 25, that was the ultimate thing. The age of 25, I got married. When I got married at 25, my wife was literally years old. We get married. Let me tell you, it's work. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's work, but it's a blessing. But we do it as Christ at the center. 
By the way, that's why it's so important to date and move towards marriage with someone else who looks at Jesus and goes, I want Jesus at the center in the sense of how he's loved the church will be the expression of our marriage. It's important. Faith matters. But here's what I want to say. If you know you're struggling with stuff, you don't step into marriage and suddenly it goes away. Actually, when you step into marriage, if you have struggles, they get amplified. So I want to encourage you, Pastor Gabe, our congregational care pastor, is going to be running a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It'll be Monday evenings from April the 5th to June the 10th. It's a powerful curriculum. If you can't make that, find something else. But process through with the Lord and come to that healthy place. The next is, I want you to consider very seriously this sermon, what Paul writes. Go back again and read 1 Corinthians 7. Read Ephesians chapter 5. Read it and literally let it sink into your heart and into your life. And then know this. If you're single, you're not less than at all. You're not. As a matter of fact, it's only in the recent culture of the recent church movement where singleness has ever been frowned upon. Singleness traditionally in the church of Jesus Christ has been viewed as a place and a calling of God with high value, and Paul does the same. The last thing that I would like for all of us to consider, this is kind of a shameless plug, but as we move towards Easter, there are people that are going to come through our doors that are horribly broken. They're seeking. They're looking. Some, their marriages are in trouble and they know it. Some are just all of the above. What we want here at City is a group of people who are ready to love them, to welcome them, to show them hospitality and the love of Christ. So when they come in these doors at Easter, we would have a hundred more people go through growth track before then so that you'll be able to worship in one service on Easter Sunday morning and serve in the other. Here's why. Your position as a follower of Jesus is a position of authority. But we never use that authority just for ourselves. What do we do when we're in a position of authority? We what? We serve. We serve. So the vision of city is simple. Follow Jesus. Serve others.